maybe a more provocative way of phrasing it is that um, you can take the point of view that you want to eradicate bias, you know, you want to be super objective, but sometimes it's wiser to just accept that, that humans are biased inherently in the sense that we have individual preferences uh, which drive us to spend, you know, put our energy into some things and not put them into other things. And, uh, and, and try to say that if you have enough people, a diverse enough collaboration with a diverse enough set of preferences, then on the aggregate, actually, the collaboration as a whole is not biased, even if each of the individual members has things that they deeply care about. I'm Balash Kegel, and this is the iScientist podcast where we explore artificial intelligence, science, and the scientists behind the science. So I'm so excited today to host uh, Baba Gligorov, my good friend, an experimental physicist who I met like, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe, uh, when I was working with experimental physicists. So hi, Baba, how are you today? Hey Balash, no, it's uh, I'm 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 great. I uh, just came out of the, uh, actually, my my PhD student just defended his thesis a few hours ago, and I, I'm super excited because you and I haven't. It's been a long time since we had a chance to you know really chat. So um, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. So let's start. So so Baba is an experimental physicist, uh, and if you, when I actually started to work with experimental physicists, it was. Uh, strange to me because I, I knew theoretical physics. I thought physicists were these uh, math types who like Feynman, you know, at the blackboard writing a lot of equations, but experimental physicist is like a completely different animal. And uh, Vava is uh, especially the doer type. So experimental physicists actually do stuff. They build uh, the detectors, they build the experiment, they are the engineers. And if you want to know, if you've seen Oppenheimer, there was a scene in it which was exactly explaining this, where they wanted to give uh, the task of making sure the bomb works, the engineering, to Ed Teller. And he was like refusing it right away and they, they just forgot it, you know, they give it to Fuchs, who happened to be a Russian spy, by the way, it's another story. <laughs> Not to say that Vava is a Russian, Russian spy, but that was pretty funny. So Ed Teller just went back to the, to the blackboard doing his calculations on the hydrogen bomb and never really touched, you know, the engineering of it. So experimental physicists are the people who are doing the stuff. And Baba is not only doing it, but he's uh, inspiring others to do it because he has, you know, as a team, he worked on the trigger of the LHCb experiment, which we will explain later, and also on the upgrade of the LHB, LHCb experiment. And um, so one of the problem, of course, in experimental physics is that you'll never get the Nobel, right? Because these are huge experiments. And if somebody uh, out there is playing the world's smallest violin for our, uh, for our pain. But indeed, that's, that's not the game. So yeah, so that's the, that's the sacrifice you... Yeah. We're, we're collectivists by nature. Exactly. And unfortunately, <laughs> I think there should be a, a possibility to give the Nobel Prize to collaboration, but so far it hasn't uh, happened. 
yeah. any case, so uh, first question, I would like to ask you a little bit what you do. Just give us enough, enough explanation so then we can explore your journey to arrive there, you know, why, why you became a physicist and how you became a physicist. So tell us what you do, what is, the, what is this experiment you work on and uh, how it works. Right. Okay, so what I do and what is the experiment I, I, I work on? Let, let's begin with the experiment. So in, 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 in the simplest possible terms, right, um, one of the outstanding questions that we have currently in fundamental physics um, relates to the beginning of the universe. So we have a, we have a theory which we call the standard model which describes the fundamental constituents of nature, fundamental in the sense that they don't have any internal structure. So an atom is not fundamental because it's made out of protons, electrons, neutrons, other things. But a fundamental particle, something like an electron, it doesn't have things it's made out of. Okay, so we have, um, this model has um, a total of uh, 17 fundamental particles. Um, and they're sort of all of reality, if you want, is built from those building blocks. Um, now, at the beginning of the universe, the, our best theory, if you want, we have the microscopic world and the macroscopic world. So the particles are the microscopic world. But then the macroscopic world, you know, galaxies, stars, etc. cetera, uh, it, it's actually an interesting question conceptually whether that has to how you get the macroscopic structure from the really small. At the beginning, though, current our current best theory is that we had the Big Bang, where essentially um, the, the current universe uh, came out of a, <laughs> a very microscopic um, dense uh, energy collection of energy. And when you create matter out of energy, in principle, you should create equal quantities of matter and antimatter. Uh, antimatter is just like matter, except that it has opposite electric charge. So every fundamental particle has its own antiparticle. The antiparticle will have opposite electric charge, if the particle has an electric charge. And when you bring them into contact, they annihilate. And now the thing is, you can ask, okay, so if my universe was created as equal parts matter and antimatter, where is the antimatter? Obviously, or the matter, because the convention, what you call what, right? Uh, and you can convince yourself very easily that there is no antimatter in the universe by looking at the sky at night. Uh, because if there were regions of the universe which are made of antimatter, they would come into contact at some point with regions that are made of matter, and they would annihilate, and you would see you know, flashes of light and so on, and that just isn't there. Of course, there are many more sophisticated ways to reach the same conclusion. Uh, but that's fundamentally where it's at. Um, and so we we have to understand the standard model of particle physics, so as I say, our best theory of the microscopic, admits that there are some differences in behavior between matter and antimatter. But those differences are not even close to big enough. So we're talking 11 orders of magnitude, even close to big enough to cause um, that the antimatter just goes away. And uh, so that leads to the to the question, what happened? And is there some additional physics beyond this current theory? Okay, which is the cause of this? That's that's like the fundamental question. And then my experiment, LHCB, is a detector. It's about 20 meters long by 
five by five uh, in the other two directions, uh, roughly speaking, roughly speaking, okay. Um, has about a million electronic channels, again, roughly speaking. Um, and uh, it's designed to help answer this question by making very precise measurements of the behavior of matter, behavior of antimatter, and understanding uh, how those measurements compare to the predictions of this uh, so-called standard model. Uh, and that's, uh, so that, that's like the mission, the big mission statement. Now, this is an experiment to give you an idea of the time scales. This thing was proposed in the early 1990s, built in the 2000s, operated through the 2010s. In parallel with operating the 2010s, we then built the upgrade of it, which is now coming online these years, a, a bit disrupted by COVID, you know, <laughs> as everything. And is now meant to operate through the 2020s into the 2030s when we hope there will be another upgrade and this will keep operating until the 2040s. So that's, you know, the time scale here is, if you want to follow the story from start to finish, the time scale is a human working life and longer. So that, and that's important because if you want to talk about, you know, the sociology and the incentives and what makes experimental physicists tick, and the stuff you mentioned about prizes and recognition and so on, the time scales really matter, right? Because, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, we, we, we will get there because it's because it's a for super human beings, yeah. this stuff really matters. Yeah. It's just a, a fact. Um, so that that's one thing. Um, now, then, in terms of um, um, in terms of how we do this, uh, okay, the detector has many parts which are designed to do different things. So we have one piece of the detector which surrounds the region where uh, the protons are colliding at the Large Hadron Collider and measures very precisely the, where those collisions are happening and measures the initial trajectories of everything coming out of those collisions, okay? Uh, of the charged particles coming out of those collisions. And then those charged particles go through a magnetic field, which deviates their trajectories. Then we have additional detectors after the magnetic field, which pick up the trajectories again. And from the curvature, you can infer the momentum of the particles. Then we have other detectors placed at various points along, along this route and after it, which help to identify the type of particle you're looking at. So is it a, uh, is it a, a pion, a kaon, a proton, an electron, a muon, a, and so on. Um, and all this data comes together. Uh, and right now, if we look at this uh, upgrade version detector, this thing is recording up to 30 million uh, crossings of the LHC proton beams per second. Yeah, so maybe, maybe let's, easy... start, let's, Baba, yeah. let's start sorry, there sorry. because, because I, I know the stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so it's an amazing instrument, the LHC. Right. So let's start maybe with the ring. Right, right. And so what, ha what is happening there and why? So what, what's hap what's hap okay? So what's happening is that the protons are getting. So first of all, the, the protons. So we accelerate protons in the ring. Exactly, right? they get yeah. accelerated, and at the same time, they're getting they're getting accelerated and they're getting focused, because to collide to make the protons collide, you have to really have a. Super yeah, so it's it's like packets of like this size, right? Right. So and you they have go go go. They they, they collide. They, they, the the packets collide, and inside the packets. Right some protons collide head-on and the, the when they collide 
with this big energy they explode right it, it, it uh, yeah it, it's uh, it actually for technical reasons it's at, at the slight angle it's not exactly head-on but yes it's uh it, yeah, as okay. it happened, no no but it, yeah. it as it happens um it, exactly and so the idea is the following the idea is that when you collide protons um then you can create new matter and antimatter out of the energy that they are carrying. And the more energy you put into the protons, the heavier the objects you can create. It's so the famous C equal to MC squared, right? Right. And so the, fir the first thing is, of course, you want to see if you create any new particles which are beyond the standard model. So we, that's how the Higgs was found. Um, well, the Higgs is part of the standard model. Yes, so that was the last particle that we had to right. experimentally detect, exactly. right? Yeah. Exactly. And then, then you want to see if we find any others. For the moment, no. Um, but then you also can create an enormous amount of particles which you know exist and which are going to then decay within your detector. And by measuring their decay products, you can actually make very uh, precise inference of the properties of those particles. Uh, you can maybe be interested in how they are produced, but you can also be interested in how long do they live on average before they decay. You can be introduced. You can be interested in measuring their mass very precisely, um, or in our case, uh, measuring uh, the the difference between the behavior of the particles and antiparticles. And the very exciting thing about this is that uh, particles are quantum mechanical objects. So when you talk about the internal structure of a particle, it's not like, um, you know, if you have the internal structure of your phone, okay, your phone has some components. And if you took it apart, you could enumerate the components, but there, there's a fixed number of them. They're there. Well, that's not, you know, with, with a particle, if you take a particle, which you say consists of a quark and an antiquark, but well, that's not really true because all around that quark and antiquark, you have quantum mechanically other quark antiquark pairs coming out of the vacuum and going back into the vacuum the whole time. This is also true with the protons that are colliding, by the way. The, uh, the protons, uh, there's also um, inside the proton, you have the gluons, whose strong force is actually holding the quarks inside the proton. Okay, and then you have other also quark antiquark pairs popping out all the time. And when the two protons collide, it's not, it's any of these things. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like a, a soup of energy, exactly. right? Like you have, you have carrots in it, you have some pasta, right. you have some right. meat, right. and then they are glued together. Right. And then when they collide, you have this huge mass <laughs> coming out of it. Right. But this also means that you can have, if you believe that you have um, uh, new particles, then in these interactions, you can also have these new particles, which appear very briefly, virtually appear, participate in the interaction and disappear. And because of how quantum mechanics works, even if those particles are too heavy to be produced directly in your proton collisions, they can still play a part. They can change the behavior of the interactions, let's say, by, okay. by, having, this, by, by having this quantum effect where they, where they participate in the interaction without really being created. Okay, so basically, um, I'm getting very excited, but and so you can let's let's go back a little about... bit because it this this took me a while to understand. So it's maybe easier for oh, yeah, the, yeah. the audience too. Yeah. So basically, you have to have enough energy in the collision, right, 
corresponding to the mass of the particle yes. you want to create right. at least if you want right? to directly create it yeah. yeah so it's the energy that creates a particle that has a mass so in the energy right. you have to have enough energy right right, right? and so when you say known particles, those are the particles that we have in the theory, the standard model, right. and we already experimentally detected right. and measured the properties. Right. And that theory seems to be complete. The theory doesn't doesn't point to anything new. There are some things that we cannot we don't understand. Right. And one of the hypotheses is that there are some other particles that are not in the standard model. And so now the experiment, now that the Higgs is found, so the standard model is complete, the goal is to just look and see if there are some other particles that show up. And what you're explaining is that those particles are probably very messy, like they have a huge mass, bigger than the energy that that's we the typical the collision hypothesis. but yeah. so we don't we will not find those particles but we may find it through looking at their effect on what happens in the collision right 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 so so just to say i mean the standard model is complete once they is found this is correct i i, I think what what the, the way i would probably phrase it is that the standard model is a complete and internally consistent theory of the microscopic world but it cannot explain, it, it's not, um, there are things in the macroscopic universe which cannot be explained through the microscopic constituents in the standard model. So, and you're not talking about consciousness, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> we can get there. Um, no, but I mean, one, one but like the right, door, no, 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 but exactly right. No, I mean there are there are various things, right? And then it, it be, because if you if you if, for example, let's take dark matter very briefly, which yeah. which often gets mentioned. The dark matter is a statement about the uh, the mismatch in various cosmological observations, with uh, which are just not consistent. Yeah, with combining uh, you know gravity. Uh, with uh, the postulate that the whole of the universe is made out of visible, i.e. standard model matter. Basically, the galaxies are not moving right. the way they are supposed to move, right? Exactly. That's what, right. Exactly. There are, there are various symptoms. But the real point is the mismatch, is that you say, okay, if the whole of the un macroscopic universe is made out of the microscopic constituents in the standard model, then, and all of matter is essentially visible, then there has to be an alignment between these sets of observations of how the galaxies move and the predictions of general relativity and so on, and they just don't align. Um, and therefore, there is this postulate that there is this stuff called dark matter, which are particles that are not in the standard model, and they're dark because they don't interact with light. <laughs> um, and so, and and so that's how you so that's one that's just one example but there are there are there are all kinds of motivated reasons why people are not very happy with the standard model as the kind of final theory of nature but then the question becomes at what energy do additional particles or additional forces manifest themselves um and this energy does not 
have to be anything accessible on Earth. Uh, obviously, as 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 it's already some what we do in the ice is already something supernatural in the sense that it doesn't really happen on the Earth, right? Maybe with cosmic rays, you have this kind of energy, but the others are very hard to right, observe. Right, them. right, right, and you can even be beyond that. And the thing is that. As an experimental physicist, obviously, you would like this stuff to be accessible, clearly. Uh, accessible in the sense you can smash protons hard enough and then eventually they'll pop out. But maybe it isn't. Um, and if it isn't, then this uh, indirect approach, where you uh, look for these subtle quantum mechanical effects that these particles can have on the behavior of those particles which you are able to observe in your lab directly, Maybe that's that. Maybe that's your window into uh, into understanding what is beyond the standard model. Uh, th these things are complementary. It's not either or. It's uh, it's uh, you want you want to do both. Um, but uh, my experiment was very much built and designed for this indirect path. So make very 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 precise measurements of certain types of particles that we know already exist. And then um, through those, confront those measurements with standard model predictions, try to understand where do I deviate and what is this telling me? I see. Okay, so this is what the LHCB experiment is built for, right? It's right. So basically you have this big ring, it's like 27 kilometer diameter. Right. Circumference. 27, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's partly in Switzerland, partly in France. That's the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, where Hadron is because it's uh, protons. Right. And there are four detectors on it, right? The Atlas, right. CMS, uh, Alice, yes. and the LHCB. And the two big ones, CMS and Atlas, were built to detect and measure the Higgs. Right. And, well, the and, and they were, and at the time, we were all hoping that there would be a whole soup of new yes. model particles that would pop out together with the Higgs. And there's just silence on the histogram where these new particles would pop up, right? Case. Yeah. Hmm? Sadly, that has not been the case, unfortunately. Yeah, so we'll talk about that because that's, that's that raises a big question of where experimental physics and physics in general is going. But uh, so let's go back to the LHCB. So you are part of the, the collaboration, right? So this is a big collaboration. How many people? Depends how you count, but somewhere between one and one and a half thousand and okay. so members, authors. Uh, we're now big enough that we have so many categories of being associated to LHCB that I honestly can't keep track of it. Okay, so it's like <laughs> it's it's like an order of magnitude bigger than the Dunbar number. Because I was in an experimental physics experiment, which was roughly a village and it it felt like one. But this is bigger, so it has yeah. to be hierarchically organized at that point, right? So LHCB, so yeah, it's interesting actually. We are, we were small enough to begin with that we were not very hierarchical. And we've actually tried really, really hard to maintain as much of the non-hierarchical culture as we could. Um, now, of course, Yes, you, you cannot manage one and a half thousand people the same way you manage 150 people. I mean, you can try, but you're going to fail. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, but, but, but it's complicated because there are many, many things that, that you can do a lot more efficiently when there's fewer of you. That's obvious. And then, and also, right, 
<laughs> this is not the private sector. So you cannot simply go and hire overqualified people by throwing money at the problem. Uh, you have to train from scratch and accept that the majority of people you train will have to leave the field whether they or you like it or not because of the and because these are mostly PhD students, right? Right, and mm -hmm. right, and some stay as postdocs, but the pipeline is very very narrow, and so you have a huge uh, uh, turnover in terms of um, having. They say a huge effort has to go into training people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's actually one of the things we invested a lot on in the last years is trying to make it much more efficient uh, in terms of people's time to train newcomers, because this became an obvious, an obvious point where it just wasn't working for anybody. Uh, and okay, so 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 just to make sure that you understand. The problem is that the PhD students, right? They come in after graduating from university and stay three, four, five years, depending which country, right? right? right. And then there is just not enough job in physics to keep these people in physics, right? So they basically go into physics because we'll talk about it, like, for example, why you chose this field. But then it's for them, it's a temporary adventure, basically. And then they go out and they go into tech, they go into finance, they go right. into private industry. Some of them show up in AI and we know them. <laughs> yes. And but but so so AI is a little bit different because the, the pipeline was like that before. I think it all academia. I don't know the numbers, but maybe it's, it's between 20 and 50 percent of the PhDs that can even get a postdoc the mm -hmm. rest goes into industry but in physics it's probably even worse right because the yeah. only only job is that what you do to so become getting, some, getting some... the first postdoc if you're really determined to get the first postdoc your chances are not so awful because the amount of time that people invested in training you during your phd it's absolutely in the field's interest that you do a postdoc mm. the question is actually that there's a well, there are many questions, but one of them is that there's a severe misalignment between the skills that are useful on a day-to-day -day basis for keeping the experiment going and the skills that are useful to universities when they look for who they want to give a tenured academic position. That is not the same skill set. Okay, so, uh, so tell me a little bit about this. So, so what are the skills that, because I, it's really hard to imagine how even for a scientist, how, how, how something with so many people working on the same thing, collaborating works. Usually even like large biology experiments, it's maybe 50, a lab of 50 people, but that's, that's, that's like a big size in computer science, we have even smaller teams. So how, how is it organized? What, what, what are the basic things? What is your daily job as a PhD student who comes in and does something for LHCB? What are you training them for? So if you're a PhD student, typically, and obviously there are exceptions, many, but typically what happens is you will work on a physics analysis. Which is what? Right. Uh, and let me get to that in a second. Okay, okay, sorry, on sorry. One part will be a physics analysis. And then the other part will be you will do something, typically it's called service work, but you will do some technical job for the collaboration. Okay, so the physics analysis is actually the easier one, I think, to understand. Um, we publish, roughly speaking, between 50 and 60 
papers per year, uh, what we call physics papers, because we also have technical papers, but they're, they're a separate story. A physics paper, physics analysis, means you're measuring some fundamental property of nature. It can be, uh, say, a mass of a particle, a lifetime of a particle, how often the particle is produced, how often the particle decays to certain other particles, some matter-antimatter asymmetry, you search for some new particle nobody's seen before, all that kind of stuff. But you're making some statement about some fundamental property of nature. Okay? And each analysis, each, each what the analysis part is very much compartmentalized. We have, I think, at the last count, nine different working groups that everybody's subdivided into. And each working group is responsible for a certain type of physics analysis. Uh, type, um, it's a combination of uh, the technical elements that go into doing the analysis together with the specific area of physics it's probing. Uh, within each working group, so you will have, um, yeah, 50 to 100 people, you know, depending on... Um, depending on the specific uh so each working group is a little hierarchy has a head or you have sub they have some sub subgroups and the subgroups uh, right, at the end right. you have smaller groups of like more classical scientific teams that work on something very specific right and each physics analysis a typical physics analysis somewhere between five to ten people i haven't looked at these statistics so i mean five to ten is a kind of guesstimate you have some which are bigger and you have some which is like a supervisor and their student, and that's it. Uh, but typically, you're five-ish, maybe ten-ish. Um, and um, yeah, and so that um, so that part uh, actually, as you scale up the size, doesn't factorize so badly, because mostly, um, you know, most of our data, well, all of our data undergoes a lot of central processing until it's kind of small enough. And we have a lot of centrally produced simulation detector as well. And a typical physics analysis will take the data, take the simulation, essentially confront one with the other and use a combination of the simulation, you know, use the simulation to make inferences from the data to put in the most general possible terms. Well, it's all broken down to the point where a group of five people can do it effectively. And typically you can, you can reduce the data enough that you can transfer it maybe not to your laptop, it depends, but to your university cluster. And then, as you say, so that kind of factorizes out. You have the working group meetings, you exchange, you know, you present on a semi-regular basis, you discuss, you ask each other questions, you try to learn something from what the other people in your working group are doing. Um, you spend a lot of time agonizing about bugs in the data, which are, you know, going to affect the analyses in your working group in common and how you assign how you fix them or how you assign uncertainties to do with them. Now, technical work is very different because the technical work, uh, the orchestra has to play together. It makes sure that the data will arrive. Right? Right. And here, you, it is factorized, of course. Each piece of the detector is organized in something called a project. Um, the software is also since a few years organized in in projects so you have one project for the simulation one project for the real-time aspects one project for the uh off of what we call offline the aspects that happen once the data is already in permanent storage uh, uh, uh and one one project which deals with the core infrastructure the the kind of framework and shared components that glue everything together 
Um, and you have this, as I say, the different pieces of detector and so on. Uh, but they um, they're interdependent. Mm -hmm. So quite frequently, if you have an issue somewhere in your detector, uh, you might see it. You know, the people who are working on that piece of the detector uh, they might see it at a very low level in their uh, when they're monitoring the electronics, for example. Uh, but then uh, you have uh, you might also see it uh, in your um, higher up inside the software when you're doing your central processing of data. And then you have to kind of correlate the two and understand how important it is, how much the data sample is affected. Is this really a bias thing? So, so it, it goes on Slack and then propagates to other projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 there, there, there you cannot you cannot afford to just compartmentalize, but um but it but 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 it but it's complicated because it um because you say it's it's a it's a very large number of people but with a um how, how to phrase this um nobody not even the people in charge of the collaboration nominally in charge because we sort of have a management team who are nominally in charge of everything but no nobody has any of the usual levers that you would use to incentivize certain types of working practice available to them Nobody's in charge of hiring for the collaboration. That just doesn't exist, right? I mean, the, the individual, we have, what, 70-odd institutes in the collaboration? How many? 70, 70. 70. So and institute means like university departments or yeah. groups in universities and yeah, some reason. Exactly. And each of them essentially is, uh, has its own incentives. And sometimes it's like kind of 20 countries. Yeah. And they're, sometimes their own incentives are imposed on them by the, the university which they're part of. Mm. You know, you try to at a national level, you you have some degree of coordination, but it, but it's um, sometimes, but but the whole thing is very very complicated, and so and you find yourself very regularly in situations, especially for technical work, where you need people with very specific skill sets. You know, you need somebody who really knows how to program an FPGA, okay? You need somebody who really knows how to program a GPU. You need somebody who really knows. Um, uh, how to uh, how to deal with uh, with a cooling with the cooling system of an experiment, um, and you look around, you can't find a single university where the administration actually wants to give this person job stability. And I see. Okay, so this is this is how it's related. To, okay, okay. So you hire these students, you train them for this very right, very specific right, skills, right, and then right. they leave. And so, unsurprisingly, no matter no matter how critical, and that's the, that's the part which I think sometimes, the, if you were coming from the private sector, you would look at this and you would ask yourself, well, how does any of this ever work at all? Is that <laughs> yeah, no matter how critical this person is, yeah, yeah. Um, there's ten other people who are equally critical, and it's and it, so that part is very messy, and it's also messy because traditionally the technical work gets recognized through the quality of the physics work and traditionally it's very very difficult to give a direct insight into the actual quality of the technical work standalone right but by being a subsidiary of what comes out of the physics it, for people you know i think one one thing that the field if you want my opinion on it constantly overlooks is that people need to feel internally it's not just about getting a pat on the back um, they need to feel within themselves that what they are doing is meaningful and that they are invested in it and that they enjoy it, right? And these are package deal. All of this stuff, you can't make a spreadsheet out of if you give somebody this many CV points, then they are going to be happy. That, that's just not how human beings work. 
Um, and if you're doing technical work and your your technical work is constantly in the background, right? Compared to um, that's that's if it doesn't have its own raison d'être, but its raison d'être is delegated to something you don't work on. So at that level, also, it's not healthy that you factorize things. So everybody basically wants to work on the physics analysis because so so for, well, for not those... everybody wants to right if you take an fpga that's actually an interesting point if you take somebody who's super good at programming an fpga uh they they might in a private sector company be able to like get fully um get their uh personal satisfaction out of just being really really good at that and feeling that everybody around you know that not not only that the individuals they work with but that the system as a whole appreciates the importance of having them being good at that in physics, it's much harder because system as a whole projects that what it really cares about is the physics results. Whether intentionally or not is another discussion. Uh, because in, you, because in, in, in like a private industry, the FPGA expertise and what's coming out of it may be the end product that the company produces, right? And, and here my, it's, right. it's hierarchies of, of dependencies, which at the end produce maybe a number. Right, right. And he, yeah, exactly. So here you can have people who don't, are not maybe even so fascinated by the physics analysis itself, but are super fascinated by doing like building the most precise uh, piece of the detector. It doesn't have to just be, it can be a silicon sensor, can be, can be many, many different, we have many different types of technology, right? And they can be like super motivated. This is going to be like the best it can be. Uh, but mm -hmm. the field finds it very, very hard, uh, not just to give them job stability uh, in some crude sense, but finds it very hard to communicate to them in a way that they are then able to, in, in their daily life, really, that it means something to them, uh, that actually we need you. We need you, you're important here, and you're in a place where your skills are appreciated. But somehow it still works, right? It didn't well, fall it, apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 no, it does. It, it does. And it, it accumulates um, social debt somehow? How does it? I mean, there's definitely, okay, so I, I think, you know, we should put several disclaimers around this, right? So <laughs> I, I am 41, so I... And you get um, a permanent position. So you are I, one of the lucky ones who went up in the pyramid and... But I've had a, but I've had a lucky life through the whole thing, right? I mean, I, I, was, I, I was born in Yugoslavia. I, my, we, we, uh, I was lucky that my parents chose to pack their bags and get out. Well, chose and also had a friend outside who was able to get them out when that was in the started. 90s during the war right right i got a foreign education well you know most of the kids i grew up with got what they got um you know and then i then i got a chance to study study in the uk to a very large extent because in the 1990s the government there didn't have the same uh, obsession with immigration that they do now i mean mm. i often say to people that you know what back then you know my mother was able to come with me while i was there in high school and so on this would just not be possible to them it would be, it, it, our that arrangement would just never have worked went there got an education got university education got a phd eventually i uh, was also very lucky that my, that my that my parents were very supportive of all that um and then i got but the real luck was that i got to be around for the start of the lhc through not through any particular brilliant choices of my own, but that's just how it worked out. Uh, I ended up uh, 
being at CERN in 2009 when everything was uh, was sort of kicking off. So how uh, did this happen? I'm, I'm, I'm wondering because one of the questions that I ask I everybody is like, like <laughs> how did you choose physics? Your, your father is an economist who was actually minister in one of the post Yugoslavian uh, governments. Right? My, my father isn't a guy. He was, he was never actually a minister. He, oh. he was, no, no, he, he was, no, no, he, he, he wasn't, but he, he, he was an economist. Uh, and my mom, my mom uh, was a, uh, by training, a logician. She did formal logic. Oh. Um, um, I, when I was a kid, I, I knew it was going to be physics or computer science. So how, how, why? I can't tell you why. That's the funny thing. I can't tell you. <laughs> I, but I knew for if you go back, I thought about it because you kind of warned me what you wanted to talk about. So I really thought about it. But for as long as I can remember being myself, mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted to do fundamental science of some kind. And uh, I liked computers, but they didn't feel fundamental enough. So mm -hmm. physics was like the thing in that sense. Um, but as to, as to why, I couldn't, I, I'm not sure I, I know why and it, it, it was just always there. Um, so for, for me, maybe this is a bit provocative, but let's say for me, physics, either if you go to astrophysics, where you study things that are very, very far away, or you go to fundamental physics, where you study things that are tiny. That's sort of like the furthest away you can get from this world where you live in, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so what is certainly true is that um, there are many practical aspects of life where I think most people who know me would would tell you that, you know, I'm not the guy that you give a drill and ask him to hang you a painting. I'm not, you know, I'm not the best person in the world to ask to organize a social event or what have you. I mean, um, I, what can Those I say? Those are very different uh, skills, um, by the way, no? No, no, I, I know. But what I'm trying to say is that, like, if you talk about getting away from stuff, uh, it is true that 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 I'm often happiest in my own head. That that's true. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's, I don't know, actually, but I, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure if that's to do with, with physics. Um, but I, I kind of, I, I guess the, the curiosity, the curiosity was definitely, was definitely always there and was always encouraged. I would, I was encouraged to be curious. Um, and, um, and then you know why fundamental physics is such why or why particle physics is such that 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 actually genuinely was was to, to a large extent an an an, an accident uh which is uh which is kind of uh i uh well i mean without mincing words i made an an almighty mess of my undergraduate education um by uh for all kinds of reasons, personally. What does it mean? Well, there were some of the exams that I very nearly failed. I, at, at least one of the exams I turned up to it, not even knowing what was on the syllabus and how I passed that one, I, I genuinely don't know. Um, 
And so at the end, it, actually, my thesis advisor uh, was uh, was one of the few people who remained patient with me after that entire uh, yeah. uh, that entire episode. So that that's in many ways how I ended up on on on, on LHCB. Um, and um, he didn't have infinite patience. Actually, at some point, about two years into my PhD, when I was still not producing any results, he sort of told me that. I needed to decide if I actually wanted to do something with myself or not. And and I've, that was actually a kick in the derriere that I desperately needed. Um, but that's fine, you know, but, 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 but even then, like, as I say, the, the thing about being somewhere at the start, I wasn't there when LHCB as an experiment was conceived and I wasn't there when it was really being constructed. I was a student, I, I was a student doing simulation studies, you know, I, I didn't touch the detector ever but i was there when it was turning on and i was there when data started flowing through it and then i i had the internal motivation to go and say okay well let's try and make it do something if you want and let, let's really contribute to the technical aspects of how we take the data and for me i got attracted to the real-time aspects Okay, so maybe let's explain that. I wanted yeah, to. Ask yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is what I was. The, the protons, the proton beams can cross up to 30 million times a second. 30 million. 30 million, right. And each of those crossings can produce, in theory, multiple proton proton collisions. As it happens, the way we ran the experiment the last 10 years, we typically tuned to produce between one and two. Because uh, you now, can tune it because you can focus the beams, right? So right, how many right. protons? Call, that's that's something you can tune. Huh? Well, we we actually you you could focus them. We we actually separate them spatially so that they're not they don't have their full volumes if you want coming into contact with each other. But uh, you you separate them out. It's so only part. Of, if you think about two cylinders, so we you know we we make them uh -huh. like that. Uh, but anyway, the result is the same. Um, but still, you know, this is a lot of collisions, and each of these collisions is producing dozens of other particles that appear in your detector. And when you compute the volume of the data that we're discussing, in the previous 10 years, uh, this was, um, uh, what are we talking about? This was uh, some, a few terabits per second. And now in this new period, it's like... Um, 30 terabits per second, roughly 32 or something. It depends a little bit, right? So clearly that much data, Amazing. you can't just dump it all to hard disks, right? You just can't. And, and even if you could, you couldn't send it around to all the physicists. So you have to reduce this thing by like four orders of the three, four orders of magnitude. Before and you ever save it, right? Right. And you have to do this in real time. And the reason I got excited about this was because it was obvious to me that this was the part uh, where we had the maximum difference between uh, like what a good implementation and a not so good implementation, the impact it would have on the ultimate sensitivity to the physics. I see. Because and just, just, just to, again, just a little bit of yeah. detail. So basically, this is the, the part of the whole detector and software pipeline where you decide what to keep and what not to keep exactly so if you fail here that 
particle that you're looking for might be never found because exactly. you just threw it away before even saving it. So you have to make it very sure that all the the interesting events are saved, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and that looked very exciting to me and very interesting. And that team was tiny. When we started taking data, this was like really a few people. We fit into, literally fit into the physical office of the person in charge. Uh, we used to kind of gather around and we'd have a Skype conversation with some colleagues who were in Brazil. So we'd have a Skype conversation with them. That was how we organized. When we used to use Skype. <laughs> Which, of course, you know, if you've just finished your PhD, you're doing like a, po you know, you're doing your postdoc. Um, it's actually very nice to be in an environment where there's not so many people because uh, because you feel like you can you can find a place for yourself in that. And that's, so, those incentives come from the people you work with, those that you are missing uh, for the technical work that you were talking about, no? So when you are in a smaller group, you can incentivize each other. Yeah, right? although I mean, I have to admit, at the time, I, I never gave any thought whatsoever, and I, I know this probably sounds hard to believe, but I never gave any thought whatsoever to my to my career at all. Um, after my PhD, I sort of, I spoke to my advisor once sort of saying, well, you know, what do I do next? And he sort of suggested, well, there's this postdoc that's been opened, why don't you apply for it? Um, and then during that first postdoc, which was in Glasgow, I, I was I was out at CERN because I wanted to be, I wanted to be out at CERN. So I, I went out to CERN and I ended up having a chat with another colleague and said, oh, why don't you apply for this fellowship at CERN? Um, I, I had to actually be sent to my first conference. I, I didn't think to ask anybody to go to a conference. I ended up, uh, one of the older people on the experience came to me and said, oh, we're going to send you to this conference. So to me, it was, it was, uh, I, so I was very, but, but because I was there as this thing was ramping up, you know, um, I was kind of in an upswing of things where uh, that was that was okay. Today, the, the PhD students, because now we're, you know, the, now we're well into the swing of things. It's almost like a Ponzi Ponzi scheme. I would never allow my PhD students today, or I would I say allow, but I would feel as a supervisor, I feel compelled to explain to them, listen, like you have to try to get conference talks. You have to do, yeah, you have to plan your career. Like have a plan, <laughs> do everything That's... I didn't do, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and the PhD students usually who come in, they have the dream to stay in physics, right? They all want to stay in physics as a plan A, right? I don't know about all because there's so many. Um, there is definitely a fraction who finished their PhD and already at the end of the PhD realized that long term this is not for them. But there's quite a few who really want to keep doing it and then it's just not possible. And that's the part that's a bit rough. Well, it's more than a bit rough for them. It's quite rough. Um, but, uh, but, but, uh, but, but yeah, but it, but, but so then, you know, at that at that start, it was also one of those kind of dream situations where everything is so rough that um, the any improvements you make sort of automatically look really good because you're building on a, you know, you're building on a fairly low baseline, um, and that was that. Of course, was uh, it meant that I was able to. Uh, learn a lot uh, while making mistakes, which is which is always precious when you have the opportunity to do that. 
So I, I feel very, you know, let's say very lucky about, about Okay, so you, you started to work on this real-time component of the yeah. software, right? And if I remember correctly, when we met, you were on, on this and you were one of the first proponents of using uh, AI and GPUs for this, right? So, yeah, so, okay. Um, Think about let's do AI first because GPUs are a bit a bit separate. I went through various phases with GPUs. I I I was kind of excited. Then I went through several years where I convinced myself this would never work, and then we ended up making it work. Which, but we can get to that in a second. But the AI part is actually funny because nowadays. So how does it work roughly? Yeah, even in the analysis and in the trigger, the trigger is the, the real time part. The separates from what you keep and what you don't. So where, where right. do you use AI there and how do you use it? Right, right. So, so, but what, but let, let's, let's take a step back. And, you know, when people say AI nowadays, you, you probably think, you know, chat GPT, you think, because that's what everything's been about the last couple of years, you think these massive neural network models. Um, but from very early on, really from, I would say from 2010 already, and certainly from 2011, it was um, it was very clear that uh, that we needed to do what I would call more uh, more prosaically multivariate analysis. Okay, so the point is, what problem are you trying to solve? And the most typical problem we try to solve is a classification problem. We have some uh, signature, and we want to know: is it our signal? Or is it some background mimicking our signal? So, our so signal? Yeah, let's slow down. So sig by signature, you, so signal means the interesting event and right. background and means the event. ones that's just noise that's something that's known and signature right. means that your what million electronic channels that give you right. some data right. in that space you can separate the interesting ones right. from the non-interesting ones so that's it's a classical classification problem it's a classical there, classification right? problem and your what you do is you have something called a reconstruction which builds you uh, a bunch of features basically from your million electronic channels. And really what, what it is doing is it finds the, tra the trajectories of the charged particles through your detector. It finds the places where the neutral particles impact your detector. We have a piece of the detector which is dedicated to basically, it's like a wall. We call it the calorimeter and the neutral particles just impact it. Neutral means like neutron. Or uh, photon you know, neutral pion. Okay, because they don't don't curve in the magnetic field, so it's hard, right. harder to detect, right? Right. So those are the two basic things. You have trajectories of charged particles, and you have the uh, you have the neutrals, and uh, this gives you a bunch of features. the The trajectories, of course, have geometric features. Where did they originate from? At what angle, and so on. And they have kinem what we call kinematic features, which is basically the momentum of it. Um, and you have what I mentioned before, you have detectors dedicated to identifying the type of particle. So you have particle what we call particle identification information. Um, but the point is, it's a finite set of features. And so, of course, the vast majority, and this is still true today, the absolute vast majority of what we do is done with boosted decision trees. Because, <laughs> the fact, because the fact is that for the vast majority of classification problems, it's good enough. And, and you don't... The, the gain that you might get, get from going beyond good enough for the classification aspects is just, you know, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. So uh, for, for those who know AI, where do you get the training data from? 
So because, you... because because in the detector you just see the the signature you just see right, the right, right. you don't know what's what's there right so the train data for your interesting for we call signals your train data is simulation typically there there are corner cases where you can get this out data as well but typically you just have simulation so we have very sophisticated simulation of the passage of particles through the detector of the collisions and so on um and this tells you your signal. And then for background, it depends. Sometimes you also simulate the background if you have very specific, very specific processes that are going to, you know, mimic or fake your signal. And sometimes for the real-time aspects, typically you just train against random collisions and data, randomly sampled collisions. Because, you know, if you're going to keep one in 10,000 collisions, that means that if you train on 10,000 randomly sampled collisions, your, you know, your contamination from stuff you care about is basically zero anyway. So why do you care? So, but then you said that the most interesting stuff now here is to find new particles. Right. New particles that you cannot simulate because you don't know them. So right. what, what do you do for them? How do you make sure that any interesting new particle is saved when your classifier is trained on known stuff? that right so now that depends where you are right so uh, atlas and cms you mentioned they care a lot about this and they put a lot of work into anomaly detection and that and um and different ways of trying to uh, even extract this just from data without simulation and so on um for for us uh, we have for the most part we followed a much more prosaic path that you uh, simulate well motivated beyond standard model scenarios and you uh, you assume that anything else is, uh, if you're efficient on them, then anything else will be close enough. But but the thing is, right? So we started, we, we really went deep into decision trees, 2010, 2011. So before, you know, the, before the AI, you know, the, the AI summer, or I'm not sure what people are calling it now, certainly it's not the winter anymore, right? So is it the spring or the summer i don't know but before that happened and uh, then when when the uh, neural network rebirth happened we spent quite some time actually looking into okay are there are there places where neural networks objectively give a lot of extra performance and also you know deep versus shallow neural networks and uh, th there are some areas where we use neural networks in particular on particle identification because that there are, you know um, there are some places where it's not a pure classification problem or posed in another way where you want, you need the network to effectively build the correct feature for you, right? Where you want, you want to let it basically rotate the feature space around to improve your separation because if you... you know, it's, it's a little bit like computer vision, no? right? Well, you really, really I mean, go from pixels so... to decisions, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, it's all, it's all topologies, right? A, a decision tree fundamentally is just some n-dimensional binning in your feature space. And that's actually the attractive part of it, that, that you can intuitively, especially if the number of features is reasonably small, you can still sort of intuitively understand what it's doing. And uh, a, a neural network is a transformation of the raw inputs, which can then build you a, a completely differently, you know, the number of dimensions and which dimensions it can build you so it can enhance the topological separation compared to the features you might have. But it turns out the number of cases where that's really important for us until now is actually not that big. 
Um, I, I, interestingly, where I suspect where this has actually gotten the most traction is exactly on the simulation side. There, because there are things, and in particular, around uh, simulating uh, a calorimeter, for example. It measures uh, the energy of the particle. Yeah, because when the particle mm -hmm. comes in, it doesn't just, you know, how does it deposit the energy? It deposits the energy by having interaction with the material, emitting other particles. It, it essentially radiates the energy little by little. And this is a process which fundamentally is, is very, really hard to fully simulate anyway. Oh, I see. Uh, very time consuming to simulate, certainly. Um, and if you want to learn it, if you want to learn it, it, it's not a classification problem, it's a regression problem. And and to and to learn it there in neural network is genuinely better. Uh, it, it just fits the problem better. So so there so it's not like I, you know I'm not saying that it's pointless, but it's just to say that that I just wanted to like really make clear for people that because you will read a lot about how particle physics use AI, and uh, and it's true, and there are places, uh, but as usual. Uh, you respect the principle that uh, the simplest tool which gets the job done is the tool you want to use, right? Yeah. Um, no, but I, I don't think particle physics is alone on this. If you ask people in WRD they are still using XGBoost and stuff. But there was one more interesting feature. We all love XGBoost. <laughs> <laughs> Mad respect. <laughs> so what, there was one more interesting aspect which uh, I learned in physics which is that you train on simulated data and then you test on real data and those are not the same. The distributions are different. You have shifts, you have things that you don't understand, you have things you understand. And then, so you have to deal with what you call the systematic errors, right? right which yeah. are not statistical by nature because AI is based on the intuition that if you, if you have a big enough neural net and a big enough data, then you, at the end, you learn the ground truth because of some statistical properties as you increase the number of data you're more and more approximating the distributions where the data come from but in physics this is not completely true right no that's that that's correct and that actually i think connects in a very interesting way but you can tell me if you think it's a sidetrack but i think it's very interesting way to this this points you were that i saw you making on social media about propositional knowledge <laughs> and so on because this is an absolutely classic problem Systematic effects are an absolutely classical problem where um, you really, the real question you're asking yourself is, what should I prioritize caring about? Because in principle, you have an infinite amount of unknown unknowns about your detector and its, and its behavior and your signals and your backgrounds and so on. And depending on the physics analysis you are doing, um, you certainly do not have the time to investigate them all in detail for this analysis today. Over a long enough period of time, you hope that the collaboration will investigate, you know, all of them to some level. Uh, but you have to make a, a judgment that is on on what you're actually going to sink the finite amount of time of people that you have. So you have to make a lot of very, you know, approximate first principles arguments about, okay, this is likely to be a big effect, this not so much. And of course, you know, the one thing we haven't talked about is the collaboration is so big that we have uh, all of our publications get scrutinized internally long before they go to a journal. 
So you have, um, typically you'll get uh, scrutinized inside your working group, then you leave the working group, you have independent reviewers from out, typically from outside the working group appointed, then you have another layer of scrutiny, then after the paper circulates the whole collaboration, you have yet another layer of scrutiny. And all along the way, you have people who have their own priorities and their own opinions about what isn't isn't important, who might bring it up. And then you and so you explore these different effects. Uh, but really, you know, the tools you have uh, are not so many. So typically, if you want to explore a systematic effect, your dream scenario is that you have a similar measurement where you know what the answer should be because somebody else already did it. And you can carry out that measurement. You can sort of see, okay, am I compatible? So then and you, know you check your simulations against those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then, then your method is great. You can have internal closure tests on the simulation. So you can simulate, you can, you can inject into the simulation, for example, um, detector um, misalignments in the detector, uh, miscalibrations. Uh, you can, you can inject the physics you care about. You can, you can take, you know, simulation uh, and uh, inject matter-antimatter symmetry and see if you can get back the value that you injected. So there are these kind of ways as well. Um, but a lot of it comes down to the say, and in a lot of reviews, what it really comes down to is, okay, um, what do we actually have the time to go through before we're kind of, before we say, okay, well, this is, this is good enough. Okay, because usually, the, the, as I remember, the kind of decisions you have to make is that, okay, I see something there yeah. compared to simulation, let's say a new particle. Yeah. Is it, first of all, is it just a statistical fluctuation? But yeah. statistical fluctuation goes away with data. So you can just wait more, you collect more data and that fluctuation goes away. But if there's a systematic effect, it means that your simulation and reality has a mismatch that looks like something interesting, something new. So what you want to avoid in this analysis is to, to misclassify a hardware fluke or something unknown in the detector to something interesting physics, right? So this is basically systematic. And then you have an infinite number of things you could look at. Right. Where you find something interesting and you just decide after a finite number of checks that this is not a fluke, this is something real. Right, and, right, right. Uh, and, and checks, as I say, checks which are not um, what you're relying on, and actually one of the big strengths, and why I think actually the, the system does end up working just to a very large extent, is because you have, in the aggregate, you have an enormous amount of expertise and in insight within the collaborations. And what you're really relying on is that the aggregated um, the aggregated knowledge will mean that even though each individual reviewer and proponent of each analysis and person working on detector and so on has their own private um, conception of what is and is not important to spend time on, that in the aggregate you will get the to converge. To... You will converge towards towards the right balance, and and actually that to a very large extent does work. Uh, so this is super interesting. So basically, I remember, so you have a very high bar for publishing anything new in terms of statistical fluctuation. It has to be like one chance in, I don't know, 10 to the 7. Yeah. 
to attribute the finding to statistical fluctuation. So, you, but what was really interesting to me is that this number also contains some quantitative statements about the systematics. So somehow there are two, two ways of discovering something in a false way, like something that's not there. One is a statistical and another one is systematic. And you find ways to, to, to actually math, with math and with some calculations to mix those two and give a number, put a number on what is the probability that what I found is not there. And until this number is not low, low enough, you don't publish, right? This is somehow the process. So I think it's fair to say, I'm trying to think of the exact number. There's basically two things you're trying to protect against. Um, I think, now this number may be a bit off, but I, I think that if you take all the OHC collaborations put together, by now they have published, I think it must be somewhere in the region of 4,000, maybe even up to 5,000 papers between them. And those physics publications, I, I think, I, I say, I, I don't number by heart. Um, and if you look at, and, and each of those might be measured, might have multiple measurements in them. Uh, so you're really looking at having measured set a couple of tens of thousands, probably, again, order, let's say order tens of thousands of fundamental things about nature. Well, automatically, that means that at least some of your measurements should actually be, if you've gotten everything right, deviating from prediction by, you know, one chance in 10,000. Right? And uh, whatever that chance actually is for that specific measurement. Um, and so what, one, so one thing you, one reason why the bar is so high is because you do so many things. Uh, so the bar to have any, and even within one measurement, you know, you might be looking for a new particle over like an enormous mass range. And you might try like, hundreds of different hypotheses of what the mass should be. So that, so that, that's the famous look elsewhere effect. Um, uh, but then, uh, then the other point you're protecting against is unknown unknowns. So you have, um, and this is a bit of a delicate point, but you have a kind of historical knowledge as a field hmm. of things you thought were real that turned out not to be, or things which you thought disagreed with theory or predictions but turned out to be because the theory, the prediction on theory side was not quite accurate. Usually it's a combination, actually. Usually it's a combination of some experimental effects. And so you also want to set the bar a bit high because you're, you're sort of baking in the fact that, you know, some of this stuff is going to be, is not going to be the real deal. Um, uh, and of course, they, I mean, there's a reason why both Atlas and CMS were built, right? The, the field, I, I think entirely correctly, uh, generally wants independent confirmation with a separate detector before it, uh, yeah, so you, you before build two says, detectors, this is the real deal. Yeah, okay. well, and, and it's normal and, and it, and it's normal because as I say, the fake things, when you have such a complex system. It's actually almost impossible to, well, not, I mean, nothing is fully impossible, but it's pretty much as close to impossible as possible, as, as you can imagine, for somebody to just 
invent a signal out of nothing to fully fake something that that just doesn't happen right? and it couldn't with that number of people it couldn't I, I don't want to attempt fate but you know um but even even beyond that even simples if you have a single source of bias so imagine you trained your classifier in such a way that it creates a fake feed during your your review process you're going to get asked to train your classifier in different types of simulation, you're going to get asked to train with different assumptions. You're going to ask this, that, and the other. Well, one of those checks is typically going to uncover that you biased yourself, right? It's actually very hard for it not to. So, so the real problems are not the simple ones. The, the simple ones we know how to get rid of. The real problem is typically when you have a genuine fluctuation in data, and then you have an unlucky correlation between that and some bias you introduced somehow either into your construction or your classification or what have you and then with some typically on top of that you need to also have some failure in your process so that uh, there uh, some unlucky combination of the uh, the internal physics priorities of or prior beliefs of the proponents about what isn't isn't important combined with the prior beliefs of their reviewers about what isn't isn't important that means that this isn't fully interrogated and and then you get and of course then having an independent experiment with an independent group of people and so on and so forth because the idea is that because the thing the biases are such a complicated coincidence of events it's very hard for the same coincidence of events to go and make the same thing somewhere else. Yeah, I see. I see. I, I'm, so, I'm, so over, have, I'm simplifying it, but so, that. So yeah. So what I hear here, there's, there's this beautiful picture of the Popperian scientific method, and then there is the real stuff, which is the goal is still the same to avoid self-deception, hmm. but the methods are soft soft in the sense that not necessarily formalized it's more like the community's history and memory and a lot of things that went wrong that you learned from which which reside in the in the brain of the the, the people who are in the collaboration they somehow make it such that the what comes out of the collaboration as publication is more or less guaranteed to be true right yeah i mean High energy physics, I think, is probably as close to the Popperian ideal as you can get because we can we can run the collider again. You know, we generate a new data set. Uh, it's it's it doesn't from that point of view, it, it doesn't get much better. Um, but 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 yes, it, it 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 you try to use the collective if you want as a strength. And maybe a more provocative way of phrasing it is that. Um, you can take the point of view that you want to eradicate bias, you know, you want to be super objective, but sometimes it's wiser to just accept that, that humans are biased inherently in the sense that we have individual preferences, uh, which drive us to spend, you know, put our energy into some things and not put them into other things. And, uh, and, and try to say that if you have enough people, a diverse enough collaboration with a diverse enough set of preferences, then on the aggregate, actually, the collaboration as a whole is not biased, even if the, each of the individual members has things that they deeply care about. And this, by the way, I mean, I say it's provocative because it, you know, very often nowadays, especially with very large scientific experiments, um, you can very easily... Um, 
you can very easily fall into the trap where all the communication is so sanitized in terms of the language that's used that it's difficult to um to talk about stuff without sounding like you're you know oh my god you're accusing people of having a bias well no but everybody who's worked in a large collaboration knows that you're doing a certain kind of analysis and a specific person name surname is always going to ask you the same question and we all know we all we all know who's the colleague who's going to ask you question one or question two or question three and it's because they really deeply care about this thing and they want every single person to check it whether it's really relevant or not well clearly that's because they're they have a kind of you could also phrase it they have a bias towards this being important and towards something else not being important and that's my point that's okay as long as you have enough people with enough different perspectives that's not that's a strength that's not a weakness yes absolutely so the that that's a strength of big collaborations yeah you can cover more or less i mean not everything but everybody's uh, personal biases just stepped up and cancel each other out right uh, so i'd like to ask you about uh, how this like the bigger picture of physics like how this field works because when you brought up propositional i thought you were going in that direction who decides what to go after because this is not part of the scientific method that's a very good question. I it, it, I would like to know the answer myself. I mean, it, it, I think all of us actually, especially nowadays when we're waiting to find out what's going to happen after the LHC, I think everybody who's a grunt like me, because I mean, the vast majority of us in the field are, are basically grunts. Um, I think we'd all like to know who's going to make the final decision. But, but the fact is there also, there's no simple answer. Uh, it's a combination of... Um, it's a combination of having a critical mass of, well, let's not be you know, cynical about it, because actually I think the reality here isn't that cynical. Um, you have to have a combination of, a genuine combination, critical mass of physicists who really think, okay, this is going to tell us something fundamental about nature. And then, obviously the cost has to be to some extent, right? The cost that typically gets talked about is the financial cost. But the human cost isn't, to me personally, is more important, but I think at least should be treated as equally important. Um, uh, LHCB, and we are the smallest of the four big LHC collaborations. We alone produce order of 100 PhD theses per year, roughly. Maybe a little bit less, but not much less. So, you know, you want to run us for another 20 years, you, you very quickly see how much you know, that's a lot of PhD theses, right? And that, that's a huge amount of human knowledge, also the amount that you're investing in training people in a very, you know, in a, in a specific way and so on and so forth. Um, and you can then have arguments about whether this is a zero-sum game with respect to other fields or not, and there are different points of view, but, um, but that's a very important part of it. So that kind of, that cost, financial cost so comes into it, and the infrastructure aspects, of course, come into it. Uh, once, you know, some governments want to have big labs in their territory and some don't. Generally, governments, a lot of governments do like big infrastructure. And once they've built big infrastructure, they tend to not like that much dismantling it. Well, unless then their political opponents get into power and then you can, yeah, 
it, it, but my point is it's complex it, it's, yes, complex. it's a messy it's, political process yeah. it can be a messy political process sometimes the thing to do is obvious so hmm. when the Higgs was proposed once you're convinced technologically you're able to probe towards it you know this was the famous no-lose theorem there had to be either there had to be the Higgs or there had to be some other new particles but at the TV scale there had to be something visible there just had to be. And there was, and it's the Higgs. Um, well, there isn't such a no-lose theorem at the moment in that sense. So it means that the, the basically the, the community is divergent because there's no obvious next thing to do. But at the same time, there's this convergence requirement because the, unless the, the critical mass is there, it's hard to ask the politicians to find right. it. And you know, one one of the one of the one of your one of the, the people who, who follow you on Twitter asked about asked about the linear collider, for example. This and and it's interesting because the linear collider in principle allows you to study the Higgs more precisely than uh, the Large Hadron Collider, not as precisely as some of the other proposed uh, 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 lepton colliders uh, or uh, it's a future future circular collider or the muon collider or what have you um and uh, although it has some unique advantages the linear collider in terms of the, uh, the polarization but the real point is a linear collider fundamentally from an infrastructure point of view is not a road to somewhere you build it you do the physics with it and then that's kind of it you can upgrade its energy a bit to look for new particles at a bit higher energies but it doesn't it doesn't scale well beyond the initial investment. And a lot, and of course, I, I mean it's understandable, right? If you're proposing something that's gonna take 10, 20 years to build, put in place, and then gonna be operated for another 10, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want the complex that you're building to be, you know, to have a to have a path where it's gonna be usable beyond that. Um, for all kinds of sociological, political, ecological, whatever you phrase it reasons. It, it, it it's a completely but of course that that doesn't make things converge faster and it doesn't uh, and it doesn't make the it doesn't make it easier for let's uh, say people at the grunt level like yours truly uh, to feel like they have any meaningful input to the process now then it depends on your let's say i mean i've i've had a very very lucky life and a very very lucky career so i'm not particularly i'm not sitting here crying about my 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 fate because I don't get to personally decide what what next collider is built. Let's be clear, right? Um, that's fine, um, but it can lead to to a. But when given the size of the field, it can lead. If you think about now, a PhD student coming in, and unlike me, they don't get to be there at the start of a new detector coming up. Okay, we you know with the total like tabula rasa in terms of. Like there was no LHCD before. And actually for us, what was also super cool is the expectations were very low. The last time anybody had tried to do our kind of experiment, a Hadron Collider, uh, something called Hera B, that most of the field prefers to forget because it was a very sad failure. Um, so there were many people who just thought we would totally fall flat on our face. So basically any, anything was a win, you know, which again, when you're starting out, you know, when you're in your twenties mm. and this is the you know that that's that's golden. It, 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 uh... And it's very hard. The students just they just don't have that. They have the weight of what we achieved in the last ten years on their shoulders, 
and trying to go beyond that. And they're in this now much more bureaucratized structure. And they look at the future and the future is being decided and it feels very far away from them. Well, and on top of that, the world around us has gazillions of interesting problems that you can spend your time and energy on where you're closer to you feel like you're closer to the problem and you feel mm -hmm. like the payoff is somewhere within your lifetime exactly and well, that's exactly you know, what i was thinking about like it it brings back the the very first thing you said that right now in in experimental physics so, so let me just say this, like the, the, the atlas detector was compared to a cathedral for its size, right? But I think there is a more profound metaphor <laughs> there, which is that cathedrals in the early 1,000, 100, 300, they were built by multiple generations. The people who started it didn't oh. even dream about seeing oh. the end product. So, so there is this aspect in physics now that right now it's basically if you there in the start of the of the process maybe by retirement you see data but it's getting into a situation where it's multiple generations so the the people who start the process will not even see the data so it's new people who will come in and read and analyze it that will produce the results so from this point of view it became very much like building a multi-generational cathedral right and, and and it's it's hard to imagine how it feels because that's that comes back to what you just said that in in other fields like ai it's like weeks you know and in, in biology it's maybe years but well but and it's I, I going think, much faster right so i i think that that's true but I, and i think i think really there are three things and any one of them or even any two of them combined would would not really be an issue but all three together are make it very hard the first one is the very long time skills that that really does make it hard the second one is that if you do a phd you're and you really stick it out until the end and you in not the end of the phd but you say okay i want and i could you i want to be a particle physicist you can be really good at your job and you can be a really good physicist and you can produce really high quality results and you still have a non-negligible risk that the uh, the universities and the, the funding agencies will fundamentally say well we're very sorry but you're just not what we're looking for um and that can happen that typically will happen when you're in your mid-30s that that's so that's a rough proposition those two together are quite rough on their own and then on top of that that there isn't and this one is kind of hard but there isn't, I think, a, a kind of universe, a simple payoff in terms of fundamental knowledge where you can say to yourself, well, okay, I'm going to make this sacrifice and it's super risky, but at the end of it, you know, if it works out, you know, I will leave a, a real legacy of fundamental knowledge for humanity, or really something new, not just, oh, I... You know, I measured this thing that we already knew about much more precisely. And that gets into, and don't get me wrong, so I personally think that measuring stuff that we already know about much more precisely is an incredibly worthwhile thing to leave to future generations because just because we don't have the tools to see the new particles today, and maybe we won't even have them 100 years from now, you know, one day 
somebody will uh, betting against the collective I, I'm fundamentally an optimist you know betting against the collective uh, power of humanity to make things happen is generally been a losing proposition for many <laughs> centuries now and I think remains a losing proposition um, but but when you have all those three things together if you try to put it from the perspective of a 20 year old particularly a 20 year old if you think about a kid who's coming out of family where they're not going to get an inheritance they're and then they're being asked to do all of this on salaries where buying you know having a, a stable situation of where to live looks like a total fantasy yeah, and where most of the time the idea that they should be able to find um be able to live with their partner in the same country is considered a bit of a kind of luxury why 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 are you why why are you worrying about that well it's very easy to see uh why uh interesting problems in other domains that are able to pay you know good salaries have short time skills yada 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 you can you can deeply be affected by fundamental physics as much as you want, but there are realities in life. And again, each individual case, it might you might be able to get out of, but once it starts being a problem in the aggregate, hmm. then you are in deep trouble. And that connects to specialization. And this is a this is a real problem. Once the coverage is so big, you specialize, it's normal. At the same time, it means there are very, very few people who can still put the detector together from A to Z by themselves. Almost nobody, if we're being honest, almost nobody. Well, that, that's, a, that's a huge problem. We, we still have the generation that got to do whole detectors by themselves because they were so much smaller around, but 20 years from now, we won't. And that's something that the field, I think, understands and none, nobody has a very smart solution to. Um, so yeah, it's... Um, it's a long-term problem so there are two more topics i want to do before we wrap up one is um what are your dreams for yourself so so we talked about like you know this multi-generational idea of giving knowledge for the next generations in your lifetime so what what what's the best scenario that you can imagine for yourself you know that's a really difficult one. I mean, the most basic answer is that I somehow got to live the dream already, you know, and I know it sounds really, in a way that sounds like a cop-out, but the truth is, you know, if you look at what happened to most Yugoslav kids born in 1982, I mean, I've lived, I've, I've lived the dream in that sense. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't get the war. I got the uh, I got the education minus most of the most of the pain. It wasn't okay. Living as an immigrant in the nineties wasn't entirely devoid of xenophobic problems, but it, but I think compared to most people, I had it pretty easy. And then, as I say, I got to be there for the startup of the LHC, and so you got to at some level you got to count your blessings. Uh, what what comes next? Um, is is a bonus that's 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 that, that's the reality um now of course i i'm not you know i 
I have an appetite for the bonus to be, I'd like the bonus to be nice. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not trapped in some kind of total survivor guilt in that respect. Um, and I, I would like very much to have a chance that, that there is the next generation of facilities which is built on a time scale where I can make a meaningful contribution to its construction and I think realistically be around on the ground floor as I'm retiring and it's starting up. I think I think faster than that is a is a fun is a pipe dream. Um that would be nice. I, I'd like that and I in an ideal world I'd like to have enough you know intellectually challenging problems to solve along the way some of the you I know mean, to get into the details of it probably but you know some of the proposed facilities if you're somebody who cares about processing data in real time have uh, bigger challenges associated with them than others and uh, of course that's not a reason that that obviously is not a reason to build one facility or another but it does mean that in some of them you yeah. um that that's so that for me personally is is really um uh, is really within, you know, within the field, uh, what um, what I'm thinking about. And then, of course, I have, again, I, I have the freedom because of this, uh, my position, that I can think beyond necessarily collider physics. And I think uh, there are definitely, there are definitely problems out there uh, that haven't got much to do with, 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 with collider physics that maybe that may be interesting to that may be interesting to think about. Um, what 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 do you do if there was no collider physics? What would be the second best uh, domain to study? Uh, it's kind of funny, <laughs> you know. I think. I mean, within within physics itself, there are all kinds of things. There's the the um, what's coming up, hopefully very soon, is a real chance to. Uh, to decide to see whether there's matter-antimatter symmetry in, in neutrinos, which are a type of fundamental particle, one of the few types where we haven't nailed down whether it's there or not yet. That's definitely a super exciting problem. Uh, on the cosmology side with, with gravitational waves, there's a whole range of exciting problems that have opened up. But there are also, you know, increasingly, and this is probably you know part of the uh heritage of being fundamentally a kind of you know. East European dilettante intellectual in Paris, you know there are fundamental kinds of there are there are things where you have to you also ask yourself well hang on you're doing fundamental physics but you're living in a in a country and on, on a continent where as I kind of hinted at before increasingly young people are unable to have affordable housing reasonable affordable housing well that's not a real problem that's an entirely manufactured political problem we we are more than capable of building enough housing for everybody we, we choose not to do it for a very complex set of reasons okay and and you can and i've i've often played with my head with the idea of various econometric you know simulations if you want of trying to demonstrate quantitatively, even though I don't believe it's actually a quantitative problem, why this is so ridiculous. And all, all kinds of things like that, but 
you know, I'm probably in the early stages of a midlife crisis. So <laughs> if, you, if you think I mean, so it's, coming, it's coming for me at some point sooner rather than later, I mean, it, it's an so you, you're thinking about working on the housing problem somehow or I, the economy that, of it. Let's put it this way. It's something that the absolute lack of logic in how things are organized today drives me up the wall every time I think about it. Which is normally a good starting point for thinking, exactly. okay, I want to work on this, <laughs> you know. Okay, oh, uh, that's that's an interesting one. Okay, okay, maybe for another podcast. But the last question I want to ask is that we I usually talk about this as a scientist. It was never very easy to bring the science home because somehow, you know, as I said, physics is so far away from what we do. But even computer science is so far away what we do at home when we hug our kids and we live there you know and so talking about my my science at home was always hard now you are in a position where this is not the case because your yeah. wife is also a physicist in the same experiment so i, I want to ask you about that experience like uh, how, how is it uh, is it make does it make uh, marriage easier that you work on the same thing or harder yeah, so that's a very interesting one. Um, for, for the vast majority of our professional lives, we strictly, we, surprisingly, but we succeeded in never working on the same thing. Uh, or, or actually, we, we stayed almost as far away from each other within, you know, what is possible within the collaboration in terms of our areas of interest. You know, a bit of a family joke that I that I end up doing stuff that, that she did, but like three years later, which has happened a few times. <laughs> um, but now that you know, Yasmin is 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 the first going into experiment. It's been more complicated uh, because, uh, uh, well, actually, on the organizational side, it's been very easy because I just no longer have any opinions, which is actually fine. But um, about anything, because of course she, you know, she has responsibilities for how certain things are organized, and it would not help anybody if I opened my mouth and said what I think about it. Um, but on the physics side, I have physics opinions, and there it's not. There isn't actually a. It's not actually healthy for anybody to to not express them, neither for me nor for her nor for. I'd like to think for the collaboration. So there it's a bit it's a bit more nuanced, but we work very, very hard to keep the the evenings uh, physics less as as free of this. So I mean, it helps that our daughter is like five now. Mm -hmm. So you know, at the stage we're still at the stage where um, it's mathematics that's being introduced much much more than physics and of course you know she's been to a control room she she knows daddy and mommy work on the experiment and so on but mm -hmm. beyond that um but beyond that at dinner time it uh, it can be um can be factorized out and i had you know actually for for, for most of right now this year is the first time in like 12 years that I don't have a significant responsibility in the collaboration, which has been super liberating because for most of my daughter's life, she got used to the fact that 
you know, daddy's working very late at night and, and now she has to get used to it. He's not, but mommy is, mommy. which is super confusing for her. Uh, but she's figured it out now. Um, so she probably thinks there's now an oscillation effect. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, um, okay, Baba. So maybe the last thing, if you want to ask me any question. Um, yeah, actually, let, let me ask you, why the podcast? I mean, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually no, but I'm super curious because also because the, the way you frame the podcast it isn't like a traditional it isn't like a like a traditional podcast but also you know and you get into topics from very like it, it's not the angles that you would like typically find but i'm just i'm just curious like at what point were were you like okay this is what i need to put my energy into hmm thank you very much i mean that's 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 the question actually well, it's complicated, but essentially, I got to be interested in some, some, somehow the the border between spirit, spirituality and science. And this is where you know all those blog posts that you mentioned come out of. Like in science, we are looking for the truth, and then how do you decide which truth we want to look for? That's that's a that's a profoundly non-scientific question, and the answers are also non-scientific. And I started to consume a lot of youtube podcasts there is a thing which is called this little corner of the internet which contains people from various sides of science spirituality religion etc and i i felt that i had sort sort of like um an urge to not only consume but also produce. I felt that there were a lot of things I wanted to say, and this seemed to be the the easiest way to do this and the most fun way, actually, to interview people and see what comes out of them. I'm not going to. It's, it's really hard to do this alone. I started to to blog, but then I realized that the best way to, to actually talk about the things is, is, a, is a dialogue. And I also happen to have interesting discussions with people, you know, in the, in the office at lunch. And when I was at uh, university, we had super interesting discussions with the students, with my colleagues. And I thought that this, is, this could be interesting to, to record. A lot of people are doing this, so why, why, why couldn't I? But the main reason was this sort of like this psychological urge to to get my point of view out so people can see it, so I can get, I can get validation somehow of the thing that I'm interested in. It's a little bit like your housing thing, you know. I it's not not only anger. There is anger too. So if somebody contradicts you and you you know that it's stupid and you know, but there is also that's actually the the better type of emotion in this because when you get angry you argue with somebody that feels bad but at least you are connected right mm. yes definitely. but there, there is the other kind of uh, sort of like cosmic loneliness where you you feel that what you have is doesn't interest anybody 
and it's 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 i mean it depends on your psych psychological setup but i i have the tendency of, of of believing that so i thought let's try it i mean a lot of people don't know me don't know what i think so let's let's try something there where where these things can get out and can get built in a dialogical way and so i was you know cooking this this decision for a long time because it's not easy to start a podcast i i did two podcasts where i i was interviewed mm. by paul van der clay who's a completely out of you know my my domain but he's a he's, he's a, a calvinist pastor in sacramento the other one was by karen wong who's also part of what we call this you know this little corner of the internet uh, who's a painter and so we had very interesting conversations and it, that gave me the taste so to actually do it by myself and actually maybe uh, have my unique way of of, of driving the, this, this this conversations and participating in them so i don't know where it will go right now you are number four so if it ever gets famous like lex friedman then you will be <laughs> on top of the list <laughs> on the ground floor again yes but uh for now yes. for now it's yeah i have a uh, very interesting people lined up and i'm very very excited to to, to to continue to do this and honestly after a while you get into the um, the routine it's not that much of a an effort you know the the to, to get into the you know to, to actually start it it i needed a lot of energy and generate dopamine from other sources mm -hmm. but once it starts it 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 sort of maintains itself it's a really nice thing to do uh, yeah i i can i mean like that 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 part i can i can definitely see with the um you're you're very much into it no but i mean I, this was so this because this for me was the first time the first time that i've been interviewed in the podcast but no i was very um it was super, super cool and uh, very, very interesting, very interesting conversation. And I can see, I can see the motivation as well from, um, from, from your side. I mean, I, because the, I, I think because to some extent I, and maybe, maybe it's not true, but I, I think at least to some extent I, I, I understand the, uh, the importance you place on um, the connection between science as a way of knowing things, but then the non-scientific aspects of deciding on what is important for you to know. And this is this is something where which often gets reduced out of the conversation or worse, you know, mocked as being, you know, irrelevant or even harmful, and uh, that which I which I personally never never subscribe to. So that's definitely yeah. Yeah, there there definitely uh, when I ask people what why why they do what they do, that can generate pretty varying uh, emotions. Some people get angry. Some people get disconnected that question doesn't occur to them mm -hmm. and the, the thing is so so this this was for me this was like uh 
a, a daily question when I was the head of the Center for Data Science. A little bit what you described on like which which uh, systematic to devote time to, or which particle to devote the detector to. The setup of, of the the center was which was completely up to me, but the people around me that we wanted to put AI into scientific pipeline, right? And Paris-Saclay is a huge university, so scientific pipeline you have ten thousand of them. And among those 10,000, there was a hundred who were, who could like credibly ask for our help. And those varied from not, not between, you know, the, the, the Higgs boson and the, the B or whatever other particle, but between astrophysics, analytical chemistry, behavioral economy, and whatever the Higgs boson. So I had to make decisions on which ones we pick up and, and all of them were interesting intellectual problems. That was the worst of it. So yeah, I couldn't use my, my general instinct of just going after the interesting problems because they were all interesting. Yeah, and yeah. we had really finite resources. So, so I started to think about like how to formalize this decision process and it, it inherently became political, not in the bad sense, but in the sense that, it, that it was, these were value decisions, yes, which is. truth is more important. So this is where this whole thing started about them. No, like no but, it, but it's something that the field, they, and actually maybe that's a good good, good point in some sense it, to emphasize since we're, we're wrapping up is that it, it, this is something which, which, you know, you see discussions on social media between people who are passionate about building the next generation of particle physics facilities and people who don't think it should be done. And something that I think we as a field actually struggle to engage properly with is if you want to convince people that typically you have to, to some extent to empathize with them. And it is often difficult to empathize and try to re-justify why this knowledge is what people should be sinking their time into compared to other knowledge. But at the same time, you, you know, while you know, the, often the argument is, oh, well, you know, it's not a zero sum game, but, but, but when it comes to recruiting people and so on, it's not exactly zero sum, but you are actually Close, saying, yeah. well, you are saying, please invest your energy here. This is the knowledge that's worth your life to find. Mm. And that's something where, the introspection, I think, is is maybe not quite where it needs to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's it's informal, it's soft, it's human, it's uh, spiritual. It's about connections and 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 the ambience in the collaboration and stuff like this. Yeah. Very much uh, outside of the, the the range of science. Yeah. I, yeah, and so so this is uh, this is where my this this more more global thinking of mine started, and then I got into this, you know, it's 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 meandering around the same way as as you do in particle physics, right? So I don't really I can't really explain why I went in what direction, but what I'm really interested in now is to 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 think about these these questions like. To, to be very precise, the, the thing I'm asking in the blog is like, why did I work on the Higgs boson mm. if I was a 
an AI researcher who was dreaming about intelligence and cracking that nut. But somehow that, you know, in 2014, I worked with Atlas and we did this Higgs boson challenge on Kaggle. Somebody, it's, somehow it sucked me in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all those soft things that you, you're talking about like uh, actually experimental physics sucked me in because it's the i i like so much the aspect of collaborating more yeah, yeah. especially in Auger. so i was in the period collaboration which is smaller and right. it's really like the sort of like the wild west of experimental physics you know i remember your stories about <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it was about the number number of people in the workshops, so it was really like a, a, a warm, cozy place of be to be, uh, yeah, yeah. and I sort of forgot about my dreams of you know working on intelligence or artificial intelligence, and it it lasted for a while, and then I started to ask these questions, and then I came out of it actually and went back to AI. But the question lingered, like why do we do what we do, and what is my real calling? Because this is something mystical, like. I can't answer either why. And the, this podcast was just somehow the natural, natural uh, choice at a certain point, and we'll see where it will go. But for now, I'll I'll do the first season for sure for this year. Well, okay, it's been a pleasure, really. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for this last question, and thank you very much for all your answers. It was super interesting. I probably I have like tons of more questions more precise details and also about the sociology of the collaborations but maybe uh, another time absolutely so thank 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 you very much Vava, and actually see you tomorrow for the goulash bye <laughs> uh, bye, -bye. Uh...